But I, I kind of want to throw it to you, Kenny. Um, is <laughs> everybody it, wants to throw it to each other, yeah, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode three hundred and twenty-five of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode with the second installment on our four-part series of Is Bourbon Broken? Here's your weekly bourbon news update. If you, your store, or maybe a private group picked a George Remus barrel this past year, well, get ready to have it in your hands soon because Luxco announced that George Remus single barrel selections are headed to participating retailers in September. All single barrel selections for George Remus were done back in March of this past year for everyone, and they got to choose barrels between the 21% and the 36% rye mash bills, all coming from MGP. So that's good news for our private barrel club members because we picked barrel number 572 back in March, and that's going to be in our hands very soon as well. Barton 1792 just wrapped up its $25 million warehouse expansion, which is an investment to increase barrel storage capacity by around 25%. This expansion on the distillery constructed of three new warehouses, and the first was built on-site at the Historic Distillery, which is the first one since 1963. Warehouse 33 was the first new warehouse to be built. It was completed back in February and now is nearly filled with new barrels of whiskey. Warehouse 34 was built this past summer and is about 70% filled with barrels. And Warehouse 35 was just completed with new barrels coming in in just the next few weeks. These warehouses are made of traditional wood floors and wood storage ricking with metal siding. Warehouse 33 holds around 33,500 barrels, and warehouses 34 and 35 hold around 58,800 barrels each. And as just for a reference, the existing warehouses on the distillery's property hold respectively around 19,600 barrels each. So doubling and almost tripling capacity in size here. Now we focus on bourbon a lot, but there is a rising star in the whiskey world, and that's the American single malt. Today, there is nothing that legally defines what an American single malt category is, but that may change soon. The American Single Malt Whiskey Commission has been lobbying for this change for some time, and there was a newsletter that was distributed last week that said they anticipate the TTB may put this into law by spring of next year. And this would consist of a few requirements, such as made from 100% of malted barley that was mashed, distilled, and matured at one distillery in the United States. It was matured in oak casks no larger than 700 liters or around 185 gallons, distilled no more than 160 proof, and bottled at no less than 80 proof. Horse Soldier Bourbon, which was created by retired members of the U.S. Special Forces who were among the first to enter Afghanistan following the terrorist attacks back on September 11, 2001, are now planning to build a new distillery and visitor destination in Pulaski County, Kentucky, otherwise known as Somerset, Kentucky. This is a $200 million tourism project that will boast a 27,580-foot square foot distillery and visitor center, a 5,000-person amphitheater, a 500-person outdoor space, 3,200-square-foot wedding chapel, an activity center, shops, and more while creating 50 new jobs for the area. The company has also been approved by the Kentucky Tourism Development Finance Authority for around $30 million in incentives for this new project. Now moving on to some bourbon release news. Maker's Mark is releasing its latest in the wood finishing series called FAE02 or Fatty Acid Esters, and this comes after the release of FAE01. Maker's Mark has never chill-filtered its whiskey, and that was a decision to allow the classic bourbon to retain its signature character and depth of flavor by leaving natural present fatty acid esters. 
FAE02 is produced using fully matured cask strength maker's mark that was finished in a secondary barrel that was double heat treated with virgin oak French barrel staves that undergo an infrared exposure prior to a flaming toast finish. It's bottled at 109.1 proof in the Maker's Mark Wood Finishing Series 2021 limited edition release of FAE02 is now rolling out in limited quantities to retailers across the country. And it will also retail for $60. If you're interested in getting FAE02 along with FAE01, it will also be included in the September shipment of the Whiskey Drop, which is Maker's Mark's new direct-to-consumer program. Few Spirits is introducing the Few 10th Anniversary Straight Bourbon Whiskey. This is aged for six years and is bottled at 93 proof. This extremely limited product with only 3,900 bottles available will hit shelves in September and will only be available exclusively in Illinois and through direct-to-consumer channel at buyfewspirits.com for $50. So last week, we kicked off a series where we're analyzing Bourbon & Banter's articles on Is Bourbon Broken? It really sparked up a lot of chatter, and we've been getting all kinds of messages through email and YouTube and Instagram comments. Well, this next installment looks at the secondary market. The prices of bourbon have been growing immensely, and who knows if the prices will ever drop. Do we ever think there's going to be an end in sight that consumers will stop buying in the secondary market? Or should companies just start adjusting their prices accordingly? Well, we tackle all this and a heck of a lot more. So with that, enjoy today's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Eric Ashley, who writes on fredminnick.com, I'm writing you today in regards and above the char question related to using bourbon as a mixer. It seems that when people talk about certain bourbons, they will sometimes note that they are better for mixing rather than sipping. Is this an indication that a bourbon is subpar, or do producers purposely design some of their bourbon for mixing? <laughs> Eric's just straight jumping into the inside information. Uh, so, Eric, beautiful question. And it was kind of known about me that when I was reviewing whiskeys for Whiskey Advocate, if I really didn't like something... I would say it'd be great for cocktails, it'd be good for mixing, or it'd be good in a punch. And, you know, people would notice that, like, you know, we noticed that on your 84-point scores, you know, you you really said it needs to be in a cocktail or something like that. And keep in mind, you know, when I'm reviewing for someone else, I'm following their standards of, like, how the review should go and their point system and everything like that. So... I would often be creative where I would be doing my reviews to, you know, be a little bit more transparent how I felt about it. And that was one of them, as I would say, be good for cocktails. Now, that's an honest thing to say because I'm using a very different uh, bourbon for my cocktails than I am for sipping. That's not to say the things that I'm sipping would not be great in a bourbon cocktail because they would be. It's just, it's, a, it's an economic thing. So if I'm spending $70 on a bourbon, um, I don't want to be pouring that in a cocktail. Uh, I want to, you know, I want the cocktail to be set with something that's great, but, you know, a little bit more cost effective. And, you know, it's kind of an economic thing in some ways, but also there are bourbons that, I just don't want to sip neat. You know, there'll be corn forward, there'll be a heavy like uh, starch note or a heavy wood note in there. 
And when you mix it with other ingredients, those notes dissipate and the beautiful notes that are inside them, like a caramel or a vanilla or a cinnamon, you know, they can pop a little bit more with the right kind of syrup, the right kind of uh, citrus. Of course, there are brands that do create product just to focus on the cocktail market. And you will notice these tend to be like the under $30, you know, under $30 price range. And while COVID has taken away a lot of bar experiences, the bar is built on price point. So if the, the more expensive a bourbon is, the higher price the cocktail will be. And it's very difficult to get somebody to spend more than $12 on a cocktail. You can pull it off in places like New York, Vegas, Chicago, but in, in Louisville, if you have a cocktail that's more than 12 bucks, boy, you better be bringing some absolute beastly qualities in that drink. You know, it's just not a market that will support a lot of $14, $15 cocktails. Uh, but you will see that like Old Forester 100, which, you know what? I would argue it is not a bad sipper, but that price point allows it to be an excellent, excellent uh, mixer in a cocktail shaker. Uh, Bullet was basically designed and marketed to bartenders in a way that no other brands really focused on. And so that's why you see a lot of Bullet cocktails out there is because they put so much emphasis on, on bartenders being their own chemists behind the bar. And of course, you know, uh, brands like Evan Williams, Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, they have a very specific focus. They're going for like Coca-Cola. So they're like skipping that cocktail line and they're trying to be that and one. So bourbon and ginger ale, bourbon and Coca-Cola. So you have various grades of how people market their, their bourbons. And I think it's kind of a, a, a trend that's going away a little bit because of because of COVID. You know, so many bars don't get that same kind of interaction with their communities that they used to. And I hope that once everything kind of gets back to normal, uh, we will see the rise of the craft bourbon cocktail bar again. But I think this is a great question. And uh, you got to learn a little inside scoop about uh, my old days of uh, reviewing. And I appreciate that question, Eric. If you would like to be like Eric and have your uh, question read on Bourbon Pursuit, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click that contact button and just shoot me your idea. If I like it, I'll read it on the air and do my best to answer the question. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits 
and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. We're moving on now with part two of our Is Bourbon Broken series. In part one last week, we covered the consumer problem. And credit for this series on Is Bourbon Broken goes to Brent Joseph, a contributing writer to Bourbon and Banter. And again, over this four-part series, we're going to evaluate Brent's opinion piece on Is Bourbon Broken? And we're going to add our commentary to expand further on where we see bourbon trending. And in part two of this Is Bourbon Broken series, we're going to cover the secondary market. And in Brent's article covering the secondary, he said, if you really have to have that bottle, you're forced to buy it on the secondary where people are paying four to eight times the retail price. Brent says people go as far as paying the delivery driver of a local grocery store chain to tip them off when Old Forester birthday bourbon is being delivered to each door. And then that person has multiple bottles that they eventually end up on the secondary market. This is a behavior that has proliferated in bourbon and will probably continue for some time. In this episode, we're going to look at the secondary market, how it affects your ability to get the bottle that you want, and the ever-changing price increases. So this show is probably no stranger to the secondary market, and we've covered it plenty of times and have outright said it that it is also part of the bourbon culture. Now I want to take this a step further and dive into Brett's first comment here, and that is, if you really have to have that bottle you're forced to buy it in the secondary market. Is that true in today's market? What do you all feel? Uh, absolutely. Unless you're willing to camp or win a lottery or like you said, and I've done this before, I paid a manager to, <laughs> to not paid him, but I gave him concert tickets. Concert and, tickets, and some kind of tickets. Football tickets and stuff to say, hey, you know, I got these bottles in, you know, are you interested in them? But uh yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, well, here in Kentucky, you're definitely going to. Uh, maybe in other parts of the country, it's different, but here... Definitely uh, not like liquor control states. Let's also set that aside. If you're in a Ohio or Pennsylvania, probably not the same exact thing, but... Yeah, so I think so. What was the question? If <laughs> I kind of... When it's a secondary market, I don't even know yeah. what that is. So I'm going <laughs> to... Bottle you want. Never never heard of it before. I, I don't know what that, that is. Uh, if it's, it's a bottle you want, you have to go to the secondary market. If you have to have that bottle. If, if a new release is coming out... And it is just something that you're like, wow, that is that is some double digit numbers, and it's from a distillery yeah. I really I, like. I mean, and we had this with Stag last year. I really enjoyed it from our media samples we got. 
and I was like, I really want a bottle of this. And yeah. I knew I wasn't going to get a liquor store. I knew I wasn't going to get it in a camp or lottery because I'm not going. So I where would, did I go? Secondary market. I, I would qualify this a little bit. Uh, there's enough like online stores that are selling selling these like rare bottles now. I mean, you have to pay stupid prices. Way over secondary, usually. Well, yeah, it's over secondary. Uh, I I think that you if you're if you want to pay an arm and a leg, there's some of those stores out there that you can buy online. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, you do have to find a way to creatively buy it uh, in a non uh, traditional three tier system. But I don't, I still don't understand what we're this three the secondary market you speak of. I'm not familiar with. Never that. heard of it. Never heard. <laughs> of it. Or you can do now with vintage laws. You can go to you know. Justin's House of Bourbon or somewhere, you know. Boy, they they got that stuff airtight. Yeah, you can do it. You got to, but you got to be in Kentucky. They can't they can't ship out unless you're in like one of like yeah. And I, and I think also you know even going back to even what I pointed me before. Yes, it's a it's a brick and mortar store. You're going to pay more than secondary, but you have a few things. You've got overhead. You've got sure. You got payment yeah. of people, and you've got people that have probably validated the product. Yeah, it's a clean, simple not. transaction. You don't have to worry about shipping it cross country or getting a yeah. fake or because they're doing the a lot of effort to make sure that they're correct legit so it's, there's uh, also something something's happened in in the past year there's a company called gopuff that's been acquiring licenses uh, from like bevmo and they bought liquor barn and so they are now sitting on like 450 um liquor stores across the country and so a massive amount of buying power and i imagine that they're probably trying to find a way to get you know this incredible pappy selection that's here at Liquor Barn across state lines to say a store in Missouri or California or something like that. I I think there, there things might get spread out a little bit more, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this. But the secondary market is a symptom of a flawed. It, it, it's a it's a symptom of a flawed system. You know, the three tier system is why we we have this and i think it's a flaw to your point of the previous episode of pricing exactly uh, yeah yeah you know a lot of these bottles are priced uh incorrectly and it allows for you know flipping to happen uh you know and i say that too that you know distillers like will it they're trying to find what is the threshold that somebody's willing to pay and still make money on the secondary market and they still haven't found it yet with, you know, $1,000, $1,500 price tags on bottles. And so, but I think, you know, if if you started to put, you know, like Antique Collection, for example, at $300 a bottle, 400 would that deter some flippers, you know, saying that's just too much cash up front to, you know, versus like 75 to 100 bucks if they're getting it, you know, retail? Yeah, I think, I think it would still go up. I mean, honestly, um, everything that we have seen, in like legitimate auctions as well is that stuff is just going up. And I think it would, there's gotta be a ceiling. I don't know what it is, but um, I mean, Pappy 23 is the amount of money you have to spend to get a bottle of that, whether in a liquor store or on the secondary market or on one of those crazy online sites. I mean, it's an arm. I mean, it's above five grand in some places and in there. We're not even talking Stitzel Weller stocks yeah. <laughs> anymore, you know? <laughs> it, is, it is just the brand that, that comes along with it. And you know, Ryan, to kind of talk about your idea of, of price and, and what this goes into it, I mean, as the saying goes, you know, a, a fool and his money are going to soon part. 
Do you feel that it's foolish for people to go onto a secondary market and pay $400 for a bottle that would only be costing or should only cost 75? Uh, or do I mean, you think this is part of just free trade in America? Yeah, I think it's free market. You know, if that's what somebody's willing and they think that, you know, I think value is always, you know, when we first started our review reviews for Whiskey Quickie, we were going to do pricing, but then it's so subjective to whoever, you know, if somebody really likes that bottle or wants it, then they're willing. So it's all subjective to whoever's buying it. So I don't think it necessarily foolish. I mean, I've done it plenty of times where there's a bottle. I just really enjoyed it. I knew the only way to get it was to pay an asinine amount, but I thought it was worth it. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I got it on my shelf and when I have friends over or if I have this special event, it's a bottle I can pull and I'm happy to have it and happy to pay that. But yeah, it just, I don't think it's foolish. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was foolish at first when, I first started joining these groups and I was like, who is paying $120 for a bottle from 1973 from old granddad that has a sticker on it to $7 and nine. That would have been cents. me. Well, I mean, granted, I was unaware of, you know, the whole dusty scene at the time, but I was like, who, who in the right mind would do that? And now those bottles are worth four or five, six hundred dollars. One of the most fascinating uh jackups I I recall was when Heaven Hill uh, bottled and bond went out of circulation, the six-year-old. And at the time, they didn't say they were going to be bringing it back as a seven-year-old and repackaged and all that. They just said, it's gone. Uh, and you started seeing all this Heaven Hill uh, bottled up on six-year-old for 70 bucks. And I was like, what the heck, man? I can get it for, you know, 12. And that I did. But it's it's like, that is the, but that's if I live in Kentucky. If you're in Rhode Island, if you are in Montana, those are places that you're not getting Heaven Hill Bottle and Bond, no matter what. So this, these, uh, the secondary market was a creation because people who want those products can't get them in their home market. And so this was born out of that. And, you know, we're not talking about, you know, selling shoes here. We're talking about a highly regulated item, an item that every, after, after prohibition, Basically, we never really legitimately ended prohibition. We just passed the buck to the states uh, to make decisions on alcohol. So the alcohol decisions are made by state, and states work together uh, to to block things. And thus, the three-tier system was created. And for those listening that aren't as familiar, it is basically you have a supplier, that's the distiller, you have a distributor, uh, that gives it to the retailer or uh, the on-premise, which would be a restaurant or bar. And that system has, has been held in place, and they have become an enormous conglomerate of billions and billions of dollars. And they keep it in place, and they block a lot of things that allow that person in Rhode Island to get a bottle uh, shipped directly to them from uh, Kentucky, uh, from a licensed retailer or from the distiller or something. because. Everybody wants their piece, and those people who want the piece don't like that secondary market one bit. Yeah, and you know, even more so on the secondary market, I want to kind of also go back to, to Brent's article here, because talking about the delivery driver with bottles of Old Forest of Birthday Bourbon that ended up on the secondary because somebody wanted to pay and tip them off, this isn't uncommon. Like, we've heard about this before. I know firsthand of individuals that would go around in the city and they would drop off a sheet of paper and say, this is what I'm paying for Pappy. Give me a phone call. And 
that's hard for a store to turn away because it's an easy incentive. It's an easy sale and they're going to make more than what they probably thought they were going to. They also don't have the headache, you know, but exactly. they don't have the headache of like, what am I going to get my pappy? <laughs> and, you <laughs> know, we'll, set up a raffle or lottery, yeah. you know, and we'll, we'll talk about more about distribution and retail and, and, and part three. But when we talk about just the behavior of what the secondary market's driving, what would we be able to see? Like, how could we change something in this current climate? that would deter people from doing some type of behavior like this. Which behavior? Of like, being able to go through and and, and say, I'm going to go to every single retail store and I'll be like, you know, that bottle of birthday bourbon you're getting for $60 wholesale, I'm going to give you 250 for it and I'm going to take it. I'm going to turn around and sell for 400 Yeah, I don't know what you do. I mean, because you, you could do the state run, you know, where you're setting prices and, you know, that, but... You know, a lot of these small mom and pop stores, they need that extra cash and extra revenue from these limited releases. And so you don't want to take that away from them. Um, there's really just no good answer, I don't think. And it's, it's going to vary by state, too. There's going to be some states that have um, laws on that sort of thing. But I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't even I don't even know if it's a if, if I'm a, if I own a liquor store, I don't know if. I'm just selling it like that to get it out of the way. Or I'm calling up one of my best customers and say, hey, Pappy's in, you got a bottle, yeah, do you want it? I mean, because you just, you you get these rare bottles and those poor people who own the liquor stores just have all the headaches that come with them. And then, then when they don't get the bottles and they say, well, I don't have the bottles anymore, I can't help you. And so there's like a certain like uh, fiery vinegar to them, you know, because they didn't move enough uh product to warrant getting a bottle yeah no i get it and I, it, that was a tough question it really was because i'm I'm trying to make it really solve an issue that is well, never you're, going you're, to solve you're trying to solve a nuanced uh and it's like any problem you're trying to solve a nuanced problem or discussion yeah. with a blanket resolution you're, and you're specifically just, talking about the people ex- taking money from someone to sell to well, no he's just saying like okay i'm a store owner and there's a guy that's more than likely flipping, but he has, he's offering me a certain price per bottle that I can get more from him than, than just putting the bottle on the shelf or dealing with all the headache. I can say, okay, here's one buyer I can give all my allocation to. It's a simple, clean transaction, but that guy's going to go and guy or girl's going to go and sell them on the secondary market. I mean, really my, my, my intention was to look at the example of somebody going around and paying off the delivery driver of like, this is where all Forrester birthday bourbon is going to be. And that then fueling the secondary market only because this person is just doing it for the pure flip of it. I don't know if you can change any of that. And honestly, that the guy driving the truck, you know, this is this is one where like I'm pretty I have a pretty hard stance on on, on a lot of this. But the guy driving the truck, I mean, if, if he can get, you know, 100 bucks, he's not in the equation in any way. And all he's got to do is make a tip or tell him where it's going to be or whatever. I don't know, I have a soft spot there and the same with the, you know, the managers and they don't always make a lot of money and they're not doing anything really that's illegal. You know, they're just, they're selling stuff to someone. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer here. I don't, yeah. And this is the, in the whole secondary market thing. I still don't know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll take a, we'll take a different approach to this. Um, and, and we'll look at distillery releases. Um, we know that a few years ago when it was bourbon festival time that you'd be able to go to 
Heaven Hill and Four Roses and Willet, you'd be able to stand in line and get a bunch of these bottles. And and most of the time you'd had friends that were there or you'd be able to go through the line twice or like figure out some way around it. Uh, the Kitty A has, has actually stepped up in the past few years. And now there's a system in place where anytime you go to say, I know for sure, sure. When you go to Heaven Hill, you want to purchase something, you have to get your driver's license scanned. And that goes into a database and a record of what you purchased on which day. And it also helps them put a limit to say, oh, you were here last month. We limit these to you know one per person per month. Is there anything more that distilleries can do to take action against having their products flipped on the secondary market? I, I think that's probably the best one. And maybe that's your answer to the previous question is that maybe there's a large database with every purchase of, but it's like, but then but, you're adding an extra cost and expense to liquor stores having the equipment. Well, also, also, I mean, guys, you know, we have the Fourth Amendment on, on the books, you know, for a reason. There's a lot of privacy issues there uh, as well, and 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 there's, I don't know, I don't know the whole legality of all that is, but and also, you know, the distilleries, and this is this is this is a part that nobody wants to talk about, and this is why the distributors are have been flexing so much the past ten years is that the distillers are selling rare bottles directly to consumers that used to go through retailers, that used to go through distributors. And so everyone here is fighting for their turf. That's all it is. And and it's like, and that's why the secondary market was born. And so like in terms of like stopping that flipper from flipping it, I don't, I just don't know. Like I honestly, the, the, the whole measure of, uh, you know, scanning the ID, I think that might even be, if anyone ever were to legally challenge that, I'm sure that they probably would have a pretty strong case. I mean, I would say that it's your choice to buy the bottle or not. I mean, it's the same way that you choose to use Facebook or not. You don't have to use it, but if you're going to use it, your data is going to get used. And I think that's just part of... The- as long as you agree to that. That's yeah. it. That's it. It's like you have to, you have, if, if someone signs a form or whatever, or click, check a box, you agree to it. But there's certain things... Uh, this is great where we'd love to have Maybe a lawyer. Maybe should a sign on the door and says, like, as soon as you walk in the store, you wave your rights to it. <laughs> you wave all your identity. <laughs> kind of like, kinda like you, we are filming. Uh, so yeah. you'll end up on Pappygate. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't know how they how they stop it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, listen, it's, it's tough to think that distillers are going to be able to try to do more and more and more oh and by the way the company that did do something to stop it and has uh it has been sazerac uh they hired lawyers and worked worked with facebook to shut down secondary markets there's not a brand that's not a company more vilified uh than for doing that so i think i think uh you know it's the other way to stop it is pricing, and or the when, other way to stop it is just to shut it down. I guess that's the other way they do want to go with it, and that's it, Dave that's Pickerel, not the way I would go. But. No, Dave Pickerel was like, "This is how we stop it: we price our bottle six hundred bucks, and so that's why um, you know their Boss Hog release is a six hundred dollar bottle, and it's because they price it to not get on the secondary market. Mictors is the same way. Uh, Mictors is a very properly priced for their limited edition stuff." You know, their stuff is well-priced. So that's that's how you could, you know, stop it. And every product has a point where they're, it, they can't, it can't flip for more because the market will not bear it. So, yeah, and I, I think that's, we'll, we'll go ahead and jump into that too because, you know, the other side of, of the secondary market, good or bad, is that there are distillers in there and they see what's going on. 
So we do see that prices are being adjusted to what we see in the market today. So at what point does the consumer see the ceiling? I mean, do you think we've seen a ceiling in regards to this? And and maybe maybe not even that is, do we feel it's fair for distilleries to be in these groups to be able to see what prices are going on so they can adjust what's going on. Well, they, and maybe it, and is and is that considered? I mean, that's just like that's like saying um, the same groups are trying to shut down. Well, that's saying like you know, it's just <laughs> saying like oh, like Tony in the inside of the mob, he's doing this thing. Like like I got to get my tips from hey, inside yeah, of the mob. Hey, how do you know Tony? Yeah, and it's like it's like I got to get my tips from inside of this black and gray market to figure out how I run my legitimate business. You know what's funny is that, and this is when we were in the heyday, uh, in the prime of the secondary market, uh, a very popular distiller owner uh, reached out to me asking me what his bottles were going for. And and I was like, I, I didn't think much of it uh, at the time. And then they came out with those prices of what those bottles, I was like, oh, fuck. You know, it's <laughs> like, like, I didn't even think about that. I was I, I, I there's so much. So there's, I think uh, all of us who really played in the secondary market, that we probably all have a regret or two, you know. And um, but there were there were distillery. There are just dis, are were will continue to be distillers in the secondary market sites because it is active, living, breathing data of of the market. It, and essentially, it's an unregulated Wall Street. You can see pricing happening. Unlike anywhere else, you can see what things are worth, and um, and I'm I mean I'm telling you, the industry should have embraced it and figured out a way to channel it into a proper uh, system versus trying to shut it down, because it's just like you know it's just like anything else when you when you shut when you take out a a process that's working for a, a large chunk of the population it's going to splinter out. And so now what I see on my Instagram page and your Instagram page, you post a bottle that you like, you do a review on it. Some um, some Instagram handle that popped up 15 minutes ago is like, hey, I got a bottle. You want to buy one? Hey, you want to buy one? It's like there's a bunch of drug dealers now just you know, moving uh, moving in on the turf and, and, and plucking people off one by one. So there's no longer a community. It's a bunch of assholes just trying to flip. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't know if it's... I think I've made this point before. We have, uh, if it's causation or correlation, but I, I'm just not sure that a lot of these brands would be where they are today without the secondary market. Um, I mean, Pappy was big, but it wasn't as big until it was on the secondary market. Brands like Old Scout, OKI, Willet, they were good, but they weren't what they were today until the secondary market. The brands like Mic Drop and Smoke Wagon never would have existed no. without a secondary market. And, Absolutely. And even the craze of Weller, you know, it's like, I'm just not sure that it would all be there without the secondary market. And it was it was marketing. It was marketing for people. And and, and, it, and I, to this day, I don't understand uh, why, you know, I, I understand why the Van Winkle family did not like it because they're not seeing, you know, they're looking at it as like, it's going for two grand. Ah, we're not getting that, you know, uh, but like, I don't understand as like the, like the larger companies in the Van Winkles are over here. Right. So I think of them very differently than I think of the entities, the companies um, like that was living, breathing marketing for them. They just kind of let it go and they wanted to shut it down all over the hang up of a, was like someone didn't have a license to, uh, uh, to sell it. And that's true, but there was a way that the industry could have figured it out. 
there there's there's an app there's something there's something that could have been worked out there but everyone's got to have their piece of the pie you know we're talking billions of dollars billions of dollars and really the the scary the scary secondary market isn't our little bourbon groups it's uh it's what's happened into the Dominican Republic and places where uh, fake alcohol is killing people or it's um it's going into like uh, downtown Brooklyn where Someone has stolen a truck and is selling it, uh, selling a, a Woodford out of the back of a truck in a parking lot. That's that's where the scary stuff is, not in the Facebook groups. Yeah, Ryan, I couldn't agree with you more that, and we're afraid of you too, is to, to look at this was a, a huge marketing engine. And a lot of these groups and a lot, sorry, a lot of these distilleries, a lot of these brands, they probably wouldn't get the shelf space nor the attention if it wasn't to see like, what are people trading these for? Granted, some might have been shill bidding at the time, but you know, there's a that did have that that sort of organic growth to it that just sort of just happened from a community standpoint. I kind of want to turn yeah. the turn it around just a little bit to kind of my one of my original questions is, you know, when distilleries are sitting there and they're looking at market data and they're looking at what's happening in the secondary market, is it an ethical practice for them to be able to do that? I mean, like like we said, you you, you sign away your rights when you get on Facebook and all that. So I mean well, I'll tell you, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you know, took a playbook out of the Colombian cartels in the, in the '90s. So it it's happens. It happens in other in in other genres of of business. And and I will say that, you know, the the people who are, you know, we're, we're talking about the distillers, but you know, one of the key people here are the massive flippers who have made a lot of money off of it. That it, I look at that very differently as I do as like a guy trading a bottle. Or you know, selling a bottle, uh, a single bottle. But there's, I mean, th- this is so complex, and it does begin. It does begin with the distillers, and if they, and they are using the secondary market, they are studying it. They're studying it for their own, uh, you know, marketing purposes, and they're also studying it for their own uh, prevention met- methods. And uh, is that a good way to run a business? Hell, I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's unethical, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's free data that's out there, so it's like you might as well do something with it, you know, to <laughs> to benefit your business. But uh, the best the best thing about some of them is like they would have the spreadsheets, right? And so you could go in and look at the historical data of what something sold for. Uh, but really, there's so much stuff is moving into like Bonhams um, and whiskey auctioneer. Things like that that are legitimate auctions that are just the same as secondary, and there you want to tell me that Christie's has a license to ship all over the world? No, <laughs> you know that's it's not. It, it, but they're not batting an eye at that. Uh, it, it's a it, it, you. The data is very very real in a lot of places, and you're it's if it's available and you can use it to to the benefit of your company you know, go for it. But I think a lot of what's happened is, is that they've also used that as like an investigative practice. So, you know, some companies have gotten in there and saying like, all right, this is a guy. Well, you know, it's kind of like the bad check guy at a cashier stand, slap his face up in the distillery counter and don't sell to him. So I'll, I'll take, uh, you brought up auction houses. I think this is a, a fun way to kind of take this. I'll try to try to collect my thoughts here a little bit too, because a lot of consumers, or not a lot of consumers, some consumers out there, they collect and they collect 
very high value bottles, mm-hmm. whether it's old wax top black crack letter Willets. Uh, no, no, this is the point is that these collectors, they don't want to crack them open. They, they hold them. They buy it because they look at it as an investment and they will one day take it to auction. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with doing that because most of the time they're buying bottles that are already in the $1,000 to $10,000 price range, which is going to be out of the, the realm for most consumers there. Now, auction houses, they take some of these bottles because most of the time people with these types of level collections, they're not going to just go and willy-nilly tell it to John and drop it off at UPS and hope for the best. Now, when we think about the value that are going to these and you say like, oh, I've got this bottle of 2012 Pappy 23 that we know was Stitzel Weller stock. How does that change the perception of what a bottle might be like a 2021 release of a Pappy 23? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. When we think about the value that are going to these and you say like, oh, I've got this bottle of 2012 Pappy 23 that we know was Stitzel Weller stock. How does that change the perception of what a bottle might be like a 2021 release of a Pappy 23? Because most people they'll go and they're like, oh, this thing went for auction for uh, $8,000. That means my 2022 release has got to be worth at least $8,000. Are are auctions... Are auctions yeah. offsetting or like fluctuating the prices yeah. of what they think bottles should be worth yeah, and, for newer releases? And also a lot of them are charity auctions. And full caveat, I have uh, curated probably 20 or so auctions. Uh, I have served as auctioneer on on stuff and gotten bottles to sell for north of 10,000, sold barrels for 75,000. And these are, these are things that are usually tied to a charity. And there's, we should separate charity auction, which has a very emotional pull to it, uh, to the profit auction. And the, and the profit auctions have now tapped into the Chinese market. And the Chinese billionaires are starting to bid on American whiskey. And uh, 
when I started seeing some of these old OFC bottles that would go for like 2,500 once upon a time, they're now like 10, 15,000 or more. I mean, they're going ridiculous amounts and great vintage stuff. But one story I think we can all appreciate, there's a guy that has one of the very first pappies and he is holding on to that thing to when the right time to sell is. And when that time is, you know, he's, he's going to get, a, he's going to get a lot of money. But there are people who absolutely see that as mortgage, uh, you know, college tuition. And, um, you know, everyone has one of those bottles and um, in the collector's world. But I'm like, I'm of the belief that I still believe that this is to be enjoyed. <laughs> Call me crazy. But I say crack that thing open and, you know, sip it. But if you really need the money... There are legitimate auctions that will definitely sell them for you and take half. So how does an, and forgive my ignorance, but how does a, an auction get a pass versus, you know, a secondary market? They site? will have, so a charity auction, um, a charity auction will be like. Uh, well, not for a charity, just okay. but for the profit, for profit auctions. So how do they get a pass? Um, you know, they've been doing it for, in, in wine circles. They'll have like a special, they'll have a special license and. The crux of a lot of it comes down to shipping and they'll always say that, you know, you'll come pick up, but, you know, I've been told that they often ship. So it's, it, it is a, there is a, a legality thing there for sure, but they, you know, they've seemed to have gotten past it um, over the years because they've, a lot of them been grandfathered into wine, but wine gets regulated differently than spirits anyway. But in terms of like how it works, like if you want to, if you have a collection and it gets valued at $100,000, you're only going to see $50,000, $60,000. I mean, there's going to be a big chunk of commission that comes out of that. You know, when I have, uh, I, people reach out to me, I've curated a couple like whiskey libraries and stuff. When people have reached out to me with a special bottle, I'll tell them, like, you could sell this at auction and it'd go for $15,000. I mean, it's a very rare bottle. Uh, 1909. This this is why it's special. This is why it's important. Uh, but you're only going to see eight, nine thousand of that. You know, my client will give you ten, and so you'll make more money selling directly to this person than you will at an auction house. But that's in like the really rare and qualified stuff. You know that I can do. But that. But is that illegal to do it with that person versus an auction house? Uh, for that sale, no, because it'd be like a, they have like a vintage license where they can purchase from people. Gotcha. So that's yeah, it's within everything what I do. What if it was me? I don't know. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> but everything I do- We know you don't have that money, right? Yeah, above exactly. Above None of this is relevant to me <laughs> anyways. The, the, the secondary market, it tends to be more about the modern stuff. Stetzel Weller uh, had a nice run and then uh, Brock uh, very publicly went sober and then- the the market for Stitzel Weller dropped, and suddenly bottles that were five thousand I could get for four thousand. I was like, was was one guy like causing the uh, the entire demand for, for Stitzel Weller from he had a lot of it pre sixty four, but um, you know that's a that's one of the peculiar things to me about about all of this. I did an auction for the Kentucky Derby museum once and i had a 1971 
uh, distilled, you know, bottled 1971, something like that, in an, an old rip bottle that Julian Van Winkle had donated, signed it and everything. It was, the whiskey was amazing. It was like, you would never get this whiskey. It auctioned off for like 900 bucks. Oh, oh God, it pains me to... A bottle I want to go back in time, find the DeLorean, I'll go bet on it. A bottle of Old Rip Tin, fresh off the line, auctioned for like 1900 So, a modern day Old Rip 10-year-old versus what was, I think it was a 15-year-old Stitzel Weller in one of uh, Julian's hand-picked bottles from 71, went for 900 bucks. This goes back to last week's episode of educating the consumer. <laughs> like, yeah. There's, there's something that went wrong there. But that's still, wrong. it's still, the, that's what this, the secondary market has always been uh, fascinating to me because people, to me, don't, don't spend the money in the right places. And it almost mimics the, the, the ridiculous demand for Blanton's, you know, it's, it's the people aren't buying Blanton's on there. But they're they're spending how much for mic for like first edition mic drop or or first edition Kentucky Owl you know things like that I mean this just it makes no sense uh to for that to go more than say uh, an ancient age ten year old from nineteen seventy five yeah yeah absolutely and and I think you know let's let's talk about this a little more because the secondary market does drive prices I mean. We've been talking about prices a lot, and I, I think we should really hit on it some more, is that it does drive up prices, and now we are starting to see things that come out from market, because anybody that is now coming out with uh, with a new product, you know, whether it's Sweetens Cove, whether it's Blue Run Spirits, I mean, they are starting to hit these high dollar marks, and this is for stuff that was, you know, it's sourced liquid. We all know where it's coming from. We all know what you can probably get for it. But they're probably paying attention to market data and they're coming out with a high price tag, fancy label, and sometimes very little information about what's inside of the package. And at what point does a, a regular consumer become confused or is it just testing the market and kind of seeing what works? Because, I mean, if you think about it, if I'm, if I'm an everyday consumer and I go and I see a bottle of 1792 foolproof for $48 and I look to my my left and I see this other one that's $199 and I'm like damn this but your this, average consumer is not going to know that they're the same exactly. you know, similar juice inside the bottle and so at, at what point do, and, and I'm just saying that most of the time is that when people are looking at pricing these things they're not doing it just because of their source cost of liquid or anything like that or their cost of goods granted that has some some influence into it but to price it that much higher. I mean, Ryan, we're in the we're in the business. Like sure. we know what it costs. We know where we can make enough margin that keeps us happy. But some people also look at the data and they'll want to push it and they'll say, "Well, I know what this type of stuff, even like a seventeen eighty two foolproof, uh, uh, with one a, a great sticker on it, will probably go for two hundred dollars. I mean, it might go in some some cases. So why couldn't this product go for two hundred dollars? And is this fair to the consumer at the end of the day? I guess that's another question. This whole pricing things we were talking about in the previous episode, and it's tough because you want to capture aged whiskey is very rare and hard to come by. And so you want to capture the most dollar amount you can for that. But at the same time, you want to not price yourself out for long term for your brand to where if you keep raising the prices and keep an upper trajectory, then you're, you know, it's like you got to have that consumer coming back. For an everyday consumer, yes, it would be confusing because you have, you know, Kentucky Par, then you have, what's some others, Chicken Cock, and, you know, all of them having the same 15-year to 12-year juice, 
and they're all priced differently and but they're the same exact product and you know that's the education part most people buying these bottles are probably like well you know i'm gonna buy as a gift for someone i don't care if it's yeah you know yeah you may say that other bottle's good but you've said this for they don't want to buy it because it's cheap you know yeah you know and this just has a perceived value that's that it's better I'm trying to see where I'm going with this. But, I'll, I'll uh, throw another one out at you then. Should we do a social experiment? Should we go get some five and six-year-old bourbon, find the nicest glass that we can possibly do, put it out there for $500 and just see what happens? Yeah, I guess we could do our next United Batch. Just, <laughs> say, it's going from $65 to... to, to name, so you oh, yeah. Oh, we would definitely, no, 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 it would I definitely don't. be some shadow yeah. company. Like, it wouldn't it wouldn't be anything you'd heard keep, of keep, before. Keep it far, far away from you two, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't need the phone calls. Old Nazareth. Kind of, <laughs> what the hell are Kitty and Ryan doing? Uh, so I, I will say that, you know, what's what's interesting is, look, the secondary market is not... Not dead by any means. Uh, the flippers who were making their money are still doing quite well. Um, they created their own networks, if you will. And the system continues. But it's gone from being like 100% to, I'd say, man, we're probably, from when we were in its heyday, we're probably 30% of, of what it was. I mean, the, Like the activity? Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it's like, it's, it's not as much. So, you know, it's interesting. We talk about like the Kentucky Par. And like, uh, and some of those types of brands, and it's fascinating because those are creeping up as the secondary is kind of coming down, and so the pricing that was being realized in secondary market was is now being pushed into retails through, you know, through various you know forms, and it's kind of fascinating from a from a value uh, pr- proposition in terms of like economies and. I'm fascinated by this whole subject, but I, I kind of want to throw it to you, Kenny. Um, is <laughs> everybody it, wants to throw it to each other, yeah, right? No. <laughs> hot potato, hot potato. <laughs> hey, y'all, this is a secondary market. What is this? But do you? I mean, we've said it before. Secondary market is whack a mole, you know. But I, I feel like it's it's not it's not gone. It's not going to be gone. But it is pretty. It's been hit pretty hard and. I feel like it's 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 just kind of like humming along barely. I mean, where where are we in terms of the health of of the secondary market? Well, I wish I could give you a, a good a good gauge of it, but I think we were talking before here is like we don't really get invited to those groups anymore. I think no. uh, I think the spotlight might be a little bit too big on us. But you know, I am still part of some groups, and that's just I enjoy it. I enjoy just watching what happens, what people are talking about, what people are going for. And God just goes back to the beginning. Like it's market data and it really, it really is. is. And, you, and you look at it and it, there is there is a little bit of, of, of enjoyment just watching something happen. If I had to put a, a label on it, I'd say it's probably on crutches. Like that's yeah. probably the best way to put it. And the fact that you will never see another group like BSM again, uh, that was one of my, I think, gosh, was that a 2021 thing that I was like, oh yeah, this, this is going to come back and it's be bigger than ever. And wow, well, eat my words on that one because yeah. it's, it's definitely not. And it's, it's he has the right rapper one, right though. Yeah. I got that one. So, <laughs> but I mean, that's, it's just one of those things where, again, I, th- I think it, it, it hurts because as we mentioned before, this is, it is part of bourbon culture. It is part of what grew this. And I think Facebook, it built bourbon and it killed bourbon all in, in one fell swoop. It got a lot of people into it. It made people more aware of brands. Do I think it'll ever go away? No, no. I think, yeah, I don't think it can. I uh-huh. think I think even as 
distilleries today are pumping out, gosh, what, you know, you look at the big boys that are doing it between uh, 1,000 to 12 to upwards of 1,500 barrels a day, and they're filling 50,000 barrel warehouses yeah. every every four to six months. If we think like, gosh, in 10 years, is, is Eagle Rare and Blanton's just going to be lined up on the shelves? Eh. Nope, it's just going to be in Europe, in China. <laughs> Good <laughs> way to put it. Never. That's I was say. Well, maybe, maybe it will. However, there is always going to be a market for the highly desirable and highly allocated. Yeah, and and that's not going to end. So the idea that even though we are putting away tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of barrels every single year between all the distilleries across the United States, and there's that one special barrel that everybody's going after it's still going to exist and people are still going to want it. Yeah. And I'm sad about the secondary market not being, you know, I, before we went on, I was like, man, I'm, I'm really just out of touch with <laughs> secondary. Cause it's, it's been so difficult to, you know, stay a part of it with the shutdowns and, you know, micro groups and this and that and having to be invited and whatnot, but being uh, uniformly hated, <laughs> being uniformly yeah. hated as well. <laughs> but I, I miss it. Cause it, I remember just being on the couch and mindlessly scrolling through it, looking yeah. at what stuff would go through and what people liked. And you're like, really? That's what people like? And then you're like, well, maybe they weren't stupid. You know, I, sh- I was the stupid one. And, you know, it's it's definitely a, it's a, such a valuable tool for this hobby and this industry. I just, I, I hate that it's not there. And it there'll be some kind of secondary market. There has to be because there's only so many limited releases to go around and, you know, and if you got one, it's going to be more valuable to someone and there yeah. has to be a channel or avenue to get it to them. I just wish we could all work together to make it a viable uh, win-win solution for every, feel like, everyone involved. And I think I, I think the things are in motion with the GoPuff kind of like acquisition and like somewhere, be- somewhere between the brick and mortar and what Drizzly's doing and what like Sealbox is doing, somewhere between those three will be a legal solution to what the the secondary market is. And I believe that at some point we will see uh, an individual kind of like license to be able to sell alcohol directly to someone else. I believe that will come on board at some point. Currently, federally, it's kind of like, you know, well, Kentucky and like North Carolina have like vintage laws and DC has vintage laws. The federal mandate still, you know, pushes out every now and then. Like you have to have a federal, you have to have a license to sell alcohol to someone, or you have to, and you have to buy it within the three tier system. But it's much like marijuana. Uh, states like uh, having marijuana sales, uh, it's still against the federal code, uh, but they're still doing it. So it's kind of like look the other way. Uh, I still, I still believe and hope that we have a legal means that can be the secondary market. I have never sold anything. You know, I've I've gotten, I've bought a lot. I've met people in parking lots with sacks full of cash. I've met in alleys at eight o'clock at night as the sun is setting in Bardstown. Come to think of it, I've done a lot of stupid things to buy a bourbon. <laughs> but I know that those were people that purchased them somewhere through, uh, through an estate sale or something. And they were valuable to me. So as a purchaser, as someone who is excited to to find bottles that I know I can't get in retail, there is a place. I think there is a place there. But I I, I, I go to this because it's you know the the Mark Browns of the world and every they hate the secondary market. And so if there is a if there ever can be a way where we can channel this into um, you know being legal, I think that's the 
that's the way to go. I think sometimes we we vilify the the wrong the wrong people in a in a system, but um, we really do need to try to get it into a legal means so I don't have to meet people in parking lots anymore with cash. I do miss when there wasn't a a release would come out and you would go and see that night like people you know they got it that day and you'd see what it was priced at and you're like oh what's it going to do is it going to go up or down or this and that and then people try and they're like oh it's going down down and (laughs) then people yeah first First movers to the market and it's like oh pull away pull away. Let's go ahead we'll end it on that note because I think Fred when you talk about making a, a legal market or a legal avenue is exactly the way that we should do it and not vilify the people or not look at companies and say they're doing something wrong or they should be doing better or anything like that. I think I think if you if you try to fight a community that already exists, you're just going to end up fighting an uphill battle and, and that's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. So that's going to end it for part two of Is Bourbon Broken? And we talked about the secondary. Stay tuned for the next episode in the series where we're going to talk about distribution and retail. Gets even spicy. And this is where vodka sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. So make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcast and follow us as well on all the socials. Make sure make sure you follow our buddy over here, Fred Minnick, on YouTube and all his socials as well. But with that, cheers everybody, and we'll see you next time. 